Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, hey, welcome to our March Q&A. I got a puppy, you guys. I got a puppy, and it is exactly like having a toddler again. I walk around the house going, stop. No. What do you got in your mouth? Get over here. No. Get out. What? (laughs) It's really a great thing for me because as you know, Pascal's 14 and a half. So every year my kid gets older, you guys get young. You know, my clientele has younger kids. I get pulled farther and farther away from toddlerhood. And so this was like a very humbling reminder of like, oh yeah, you don't get a break. You don't get to sit down. It's relentless. (laughs) Anyway, my puppy is asleep right now, all curled up. And so I'm hoping to record this podcast without any toddler action, but he's hilarious. It's just like a kid. It's like, he'll be playing all by himself. And then I get on the phone with a client, boom, he needs me. (laughs) So anyway, if you hear any like wild chewing or I don't know, I'm hoping to record this in peace. Anyway, today I wanted to delve into a few questions from Patreon, but before we begin, I have talked about this before and I want to hit it again because it's really happening. I'm doing some great work with quite a few couples and, you know, working through some trauma stuff and being on the same page with their parenting. And one thing across the board that I'm finding more and more is that we have to get really clear on expectations of like what's developmentally appropriate, what's quote unquote normal or average, or at least in the normal range and what's not. And I can really tell you that as long as I've been doing this work, our expectations are 100% getting skewed with every year. And so I keep trying to figure out like what, what happened? Why are our expectations so skewed? I love finding out the why, but I can't help but attribute it. Some of it's got to be social media because 12 years ago when I started this work, social media wasn't as hot as it is now. And certainly we didn't have Instagram. You know, we did have Facebook, but we didn't have quite the visual sizzle reel, you know, and that sizzle reel is what an actor puts out. And it's like their very best snippets of work. And so we know, we know that that happens on our social media. So I feel like that's part of it, but I also think like we've lost our village. We've lost, we've gotten really insular with our parenting, right? Like even in our mom's groups, like you might have, you might have some friends that you like love their support, but I feel like parenting's gotten kind of competitive and it's hard. Well, I mean, we know it's gotten competitive, but it's really hard to figure out what's normal and what's not. And for example, I will work with clients whose children are tantruming from the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed. And they'll be like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's that's normal, two-year-old's tra- tantrum. And I'm like, yeah, maybe a couple of times a week, not from sun up till sundown. So there's that kind of skewed expectation where people aren't recognizing sort of out of the norm behavior that way. But then there's the other expectation of, of sort of this angelic child, right? That listens on the first time, doesn't fight, doesn't spit, doesn't talk back, potty trains in three days without any accidents. There's this very weird perfectionistic expectation, you know? And so I just, if you have any questions, because this is tough because with 
the internet, it's really hard to get the right information. But, you know, I think you can Google, like, what's developmentally appropriate? You could certainly do that. And you can certainly ask me if you think something is out of the norm or you think something should be, right? And so a couple of examples is like kids are going to fight. There's no cure for sibling fighting. Siblings are the first close human relationship that your child has with like a peer to peer, right? And so they're going to fight. They're going to fight like fucking cats and dogs. And it doesn't mean they don't love each other. You know, they could be fighting like cats and dogs, but wait till they're teenagers. They're going to kill for each other, right? It doesn't mean they don't love each other and it's going to drive you crazy. And you will be the one billionth parent to pull over the car and, you know, or threaten. If I have to tell you one more time, I'm going to pull over the car. It just happens, right? Kids are going to be relentless in their asking. They are just going to ask and ask and ask. Kids are going to be relentless with the why phase, they're not going to listen on the first time. You are going to have to repeat yourself. And so those are just a couple of examples of expectations. So if you need to check in, feel free to do that because I'm just finding that people are like, well, I asked them not to do that and they're still doing it. It's like, well, it doesn't really work that way. That leads into one of our first questions, which was anything I can do to handle the I want, I want, I want, I want when it comes to toys or anything, you know, anything the child wants. And we've gone through this again. A lot of it depends on the child's age. So the older they are, the more they're going to understand, like, I said no, and that's my final answer. You know, your two-year-old's probably not going to accept that. But I do think if the answer is no, I said no, and no is my final answer. So you can ask and ask and ask, but I'm just going to get frustrated because the answer is no. And so that, but that also, you have to create that culture of when you say no, you mean no. And I've talked about this before, but how I created that culture is I made sure that I did like a very quick assessment. It's either yes, no, or maybe. And maybe means probably but get off my ass. And of course, I don't say that, but you know, if you keep asking me, it will turn to a no. And so I think it's never too early, even though your two-year-old may not quite grasp that, it's never too early to start that. But other than that, there is that, like they get on a track of, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. The next thing when you're dealing with that, and this goes for like the why, the relentlessness of why, 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 why. It's really cute because when the kid goes through the why phase, most parents assume that they have a little rocket scientist on their hand and their kid is immensely curious about the world. And it's not true. (laughs) I mean, you may have a rocket scientist, but at this age, they're actually not that curious. What it is, is engagement. So when you find your child being relentless about anything, say whining, wanting something, asking questions, the why phase, check in with your engagement with them. And so you guys know that I am a firm proponent of there's an emotional bucket that you have to fill with connection with your child, right? There's a power bucket that you have to fill with your child, which is giving them choice and autonomy and giving them some control over their their lives and their body. And more and more, I'm starting to think there's a third bucket, which is an engagement bucket. And our children want engagement, but their world scope and their language and their conversation skills are limited. So oftentimes you will get them 
you know, being relentless about something because they want to give and take with you. They want a conversation. They want to be part of it, but they don't quite understand like how to do it in a, in a cool manner. And again, like, what are they going to talk about? Politics, you know, the environment. <laughs> it's like they're very limited, right? You want to definitely check in with your engagement. And again, depending on the age, you can sidetrack this with, you know, oh, what do you love about that toy? Or I understand that you want it and we're not having it right now, but that does seem like fun. What do you think you would do with it? Or what do we have around the house that could, could, you know, do the same thing? You know, say they want to, I don't know, a dinosaur or something. And then you say, well, how about we read that book on dinosaurs instead? And you can also put one of the things that helps with toddler engagement. And I've said this in numerous places is favorite. If you get them talking about their favorite, you can derail just about any sort of behavior that, that you're not wanting. So if you start talking about their favorites, you know, what's your favorite dinosaur? Can you give me your three favorite dinosaurs? What's your favorite color? Those kinds of things really get that engagement going. So check in with that because a lot of times what's happening with our kids is we're not actually engaging in conversation again, because they just don't have the scope to actually converse. So a lot of our day is just, you know, getting through doing the things for them. And, you know, the talking points are no, yes, please do this. Don't do that. Right. So check in with that engagement button. Uh, The next thing I did want to touch on is I'm getting some incredible feedback about, you know, the whole family meal situation and the earlier doing things earlier and that sort of thing. One mama wrote in, and I love this, is that just dinner was not working at all. Both parents work from home now. And instead they started to do this huge breakfast and make that their family meal. And they have more time. The kids are fresh. They're more willing to eat different foods. And so I just loved, I love that because that is like thinking creatively, right? And so I would say I get like equal kickback on that family meal. I get like love it or hate it, right? And so- Again, I just want to reiterate, and I know I'm beating a dead horse because I've reiterated it a couple of times, but I really think it bears repeating is don't fix what's not broke, but also if your dinner time is miserable, it's okay to fix it. And so you don't have to have what everybody else has. And what you want to go for at the bottom line about anything, really. You know what I'm a fan of, like reverse engineering. Why do we have family dinner? You know, a lot of it is for connection. So if you're missing that connection or you're rupturing the connection right before bed or in the evening, just, you know, feel free to switch it. And I just love that this family figured out something that totally works for them. And by the way, that's that's my family. We do a very big dinner. I mean, a very big breakfast. Well, we did for years. Now that Pascal's older, he really he's he really doesn't want to eat until like noon. But when he was definitely like in kindergarten and younger, we did like huge family dinners. I mean huge family breakfast because he got up at, you know, 5 30. <laughs> um, okay. That leads me into another question and another expectation is sleep, sleep, sleep. And you know, I talk about sleep probably every episode, but I thought this mama's question, I had to check in with a couple of my sleep experts. And I thought it was a really good question that probably some of you are facing. I have a question for you about my 16 
month old's recent sleep patterns. My son has been a really good sleeper for the most part. However, he's been waking up hella early and it is killing me. This morning it was 4.30 a.m. and he wakes up screaming. Over the last few weeks, it's been 5.40 a.m. I am not an early bird like you. Here's his typical sleep schedule. Wake up time, way too fucking early. (laughs) Morning nap, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Afternoon nap, 3 to 4.30 p.m. Sometimes I wake him up early, but I really need that time to catch up on work. Bedtime is 7 p.m. sharp. He is always super ready for bed by 7. What are your thoughts? Can I get him to sleep in till 6.30 or 7? So I did um, check in with, I had my suspicions, but I'm not a sleep expert. So I checked in with my sleep experts and without a doubt and zero hesitation, they all said to give up one nap. So uh, I thought that that would probably be pertinent for a lot of you guys who have that younger, that younger child who is sleeping, you know, waking up too early and or still trying, still on two naps. Now, a couple of things about this is, you know, I am an early morning person. 4.30 a.m. is too early for anybody. Yeah. So that's definitely too early. But I want to talk a little bit about the 5.36 because, again, I have this expectation. I hear this expectation that parents want their kids to sleep till, you know, seven or so, which may or may not happen. And you may or may not be able to manipulate. I tend to be a little hardcore about this. Pascal like woke up at 530 in utero, like he started doing cartwheels. So it was no surprise to me. And it was relentless. It was 530, no matter what. I've talked about that before, right? So when people are like, oh no, he needs to sleep till seven, I kind of have very little sympathy. <laughs> but I did um, another comment that I got on Patreon was like, this mom said, oh my God, my mind is blown. I forget that toddlers have circadian rhythms. That's like, I don't know why I didn't consider that. But here's the deal with toddlers versus us. Toddlers do not have any shoulds. They don't have any have tos. Their circadian rhythms have not been shaped by society, right? So for example, it'd be very interesting to me if we took away all, like if right from birth, we could eat whenever we were hungry, right? Like that would be very interesting to me. I believe we're all hungry at lunchtime or breakfast because we have to eat. Like a lot of times people will eat breakfast, not because they're hungry, but because they have to work and they're not going to be able to eat till noon and they know they'll get super hungry in that time, right? So it it would be interesting. I think our eating patterns are often shaped by work, by school, by like the things we have to do in society. And so then we end up eating within those societal norms, right? And I feel that way about sleep. So sleep gets conditioned by us and by the things we need to do. But toddlers don't have that. So generally speaking, your toddler is going to be like more with the sun. And of course, this doesn't apply in the summertime or, you know, depending on where you are in the country when the sun is setting at 830. But it is going to be more, you know, early to bed, early to rise. And that is without a doubt, almost all toddler circadian rhythms. There are while I, I don't doubt that there are night owls, I know I have friends who are just absolutely stunningly creative at midnight, which I can't even fathom. But then again, I get up at four and I'm stunningly creative at four and they can't fathom that. And I do believe there are night owls, but don't be tricked into thinking there are kid night owls. There are not. And I work with clients who sometimes, you know, like right now they have a very 
you know, maybe they plan on homeschooling, they have a very alternative kind of existence and they they don't play by the rules of society, which is totally cool. But what'll end up happening is, you know, their, their kids going to bed at like 10 or 11. And I'm like, yeah, but the rest of the world doesn't work that way. You know, like sleeping till noon doesn't really work for the rest of the world and society. So you kind of want to look at that too. Like, especially if you're not even like, if you're not homeschooling and you know, your kid's going to go to preschool or traditional school, you want to have that societal schedule as soon as possible. Right. So I just wanted to touch on that because I didn't want anybody to get confused that like circadian rhythms, you don't really have to like find that in a toddler. It's going to almost be between six and seven, (laughs) but I don't know if you know this, but ADHD circadian rhythms are really screwy with ADHD. So if you do suspect a diagnosis, which at this age, they're all attention deficit. So it would be really hard to call ADHD until they're about like four or five to get an official diagnosis. But one of the clues is that um, their circadian rhythms are often backwards. So the ADHD kid is going to struggle getting to sleep at night. But I don't want you to think that don't go into it. Don't rush to a diagnosis because a lot of times what happens is if, you know, try the circadian rhythm at like six or seven o'clock and a lot of times when I hear about kids who struggle to sleep, you know, oh, they'll just lie in bed for an hour. It's because they're getting to bed too late. They're off that circadian rhythm. They go to bed at, say, 8.30, and then the parents are like, yeah, but she doesn't go to sleep till 9, and I say 8.30 is too late. All right, so if you have any questions about that, I feel like that was a little confusing, but if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask and comment. Okay, next question from Kath. So you got any tips on handling the no phase with regard to labeling emotions, sports casting, empathizing? Because at the moment, all I get is no angry, no happy, no sad. So Kath, this is a great question. There's a couple of things that I really love about this. And I know you didn't, I know you probably meant this in jest, but um Labeling emotion, sports casting, and empathizing. I love empathizing. What we want to do is not sports cast. Yeah. And again, I'm sure you meant this kind of jokingly, but we don't want to like, we don't want to be outside the experience. And so I would number one, check in with that. It's a great word because I think we all do it, right? It's like, we're, we're going to be on the sidelines telling the child like what's happening. Yeah. One of the things is number one, the child can look angry and maybe at this point he's already a little, you know, building his emotional wisdom and he's not quite angry or he's, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's grumpy, maybe he's frustrated. Right. But more often than not, I think that this is that kind of like, don't look at me, don't look at me having an emotion. And it's kind of associated with a little bit of shame. It's that thing of like, when we use the go to your room strategy to help them self-regulate, and then they come out and I tell you guys, don't process. They're too young to process. And all you're doing is like, they they got self-regulated and now you're kind of pouring a bucket of shame all over them again, right? Don't like, don't process. They know what they did wrong. Like if your child's angry, he probably knows he's angry. So if you're getting that response, like, no, that's a, don't look at me, don't see me. And so what I would do is not see them for the moment. I think it's a temporary phase because most people do like being seen. But um, just at this moment, I would just stop doing that for that child temporarily, if that's what you're experiencing. It sounds very cute. (laughs) Um, But what you could do is you can offer, just like I don't love making children apologize, but I do love helping them try to figure out how to fix what went wrong. That might be this is like, hey, 
you know, that, that toy is super frustrating. Why don't we go, why don't we try to find something else to do? And then in passing, you know, like, Hey, when I get angry with a toy, I just, or, you know, I get angry with a puzzle. I like to take a break. Come on, let's go outside and get a breath, breath of fresh air. Hey, let's, let's run around the dining room table and, and get the angry out or something like that. A lot of times what this points to is your uh, headlight kind of being, or a spotlight being sh- shown on the child and they're uncomfortable with it. But I wouldn't like, also, I wouldn't judge this as any sort of emotional wisdom or lack thereof because it's, it's so typical toddler. <laughs> All right. Sarah wrote in, I would love some advice on how to engage my four-year-old while caring for my two-year-old. My son is ready for my intricate toys like builder Lego kits and puzzles. However, my two-year-old destroys whatever he is working on, which devastates him. She also puts everything in her mouth and having marbles and small pieces around makes me super nervous. Okay. This is a, a common question. And this goes back to that Oh, we've taught, I don't even remember what podcast episode, but the whole idea of like a trickle down economy for your kids. So we don't cater to the youngest in the family. We want not cater in like a spoiling kind of way, but we want to cater to the older child's needs. We don't want to, it's really more detrimental to keep the older child at a lower level because of the younger child. Does that make sense? So What has to happen with your four-year-old is he absolutely needs a safe space. He needs a safe space to build. He needs containers to put his Legos in. And this is such a great age for this. And he has to, it's an honoring. He has, you have to honor what he's doing. And that means that the two-year-old has to be, you know what I mean? They need separate spaces and whatever that looks like. If you don't have a large house, it could be, you know, you could barricade off a little part with some baby gates or, you know, they have those like uh, small sort of fenced in pens, you know what I mean? And then the the four-year-old has to be super responsible, but this is a great leveling up of emotionality and, and maturity is, okay, you have to be responsible. If she eats a Lego, she's going to choke. So your Legos have to go in this bin. You have to clean up when you're done. But I would venture to say, especially if they have separate rooms, like his room has to be off limits for now. And it can be with a baby gate. I would say a baby gate because that will be easier to keep the younger child out than just a closed door. A closed door obviously can be left open. And then limit, what I would do is I would definitely get like an organizational, like small bins. And you can tell him like, these are small pieces. They have to go in the bins. But the older child really does need sort of a sacred space that they can, that they can create together. So, I mean, that they can create by themselves because yeah, it is, it is a, a problem with the younger one. It's so funny because Pascal, you know, it's when he was like six or seven, Oh, I, I wish I had a little brother. I wish I had a little sister. And I was like, they'll wreck your Legos. And he was like, Oh, never mind. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and definitely utilize, I would definitely figure out and, you know, I'm not like go buy more shit, but, you know, figure out a shelving system or I know even when Pascal was little, I didn't have a, he didn't have a sibling, but we had a dog and they would fucking fight over like ridiculous, like the magic stick. I had 8,000 sticks in my house, but both of them would fight over one stick, you know, or the dog would come in and maybe wreck his Lego stuff, you know, obviously, not even on purpose. So I got some shelving units, you know, Ikea had some of these like floating shelves and then we would put his Legos up high. So 
I would definitely look into all of those solutions. But the key here is be very careful that you're not limiting your older child because of the younger child. And sometimes that might even mean the younger child goes in their room with a baby gate and and can spend a little time. It's just really, really hard to engage. So like, say your older child wants you to build with them. You just, it's really, you can't do that with the two-year-olds. You know what I mean? Or maybe the two-year-old can be in one of those like pens, but we used to have play pens, but you know what I'm talking about? Like those round fencing areas, you know, maybe the child can be in that while you're doing Legos so that like you're together, but, but she can't rush in and swallow a bunch of Legos. I hope that helps. All right. Next question that I love, 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 love. Okay. I wanted to ask your thoughts on how to navigate the world of what I guess is now called quote unquote playdates. When I was young, it was just called playing with someone. <laughs> I'm a 42 year old stay at home mom, and I can't seem to grasp the best way to provide my only child who is four with social interactions in a non hovering way or in the right quote, oh, right slash normal way. He goes to preschool, but he's craving playtime with other kids when he's not at school. I guess my question is, until what age do I have to stick around for play dates? For example, the neighbor comes over with his father and asks my son to play, which is almost 100% outside. And I want them to play, but I also know it means I have to drop what I'm doing and hover. I don't want to leave them alone in the yard at the age of four. He also likes to go over to the other kid's house to play, but that means I have to go over there too, right? I can't assume the other parent wants to watch my child. I keep feeling awkward when this happens, and it also happens vice versa, where if the neighbor boy comes over, I don't want to sit and chat with his parent while our kids play, but they are too young for one parent to not keep watch. My question also branches off into when is the appropriate age for drop-off playdates? My child's best friend is with a nanny all day, so for a while, I had arranged for my son to play with him over there for three hours a week, and I was paying for the nanny. Yet, if I was leaving my son with the mom for a play date, no money would be involved. I just think that's kind of funny. I had to stop those play dates because I don't want to pay for my child to play with another child. I realize I'm rambling, but this play date thing is new to me and I can't quite figure out the norms, expectations, etc. You can probably tell that I'm a guesser as opposed to an asker. Ha ha ha. Thanks for your help. Okay, this is such a great question because I think this incorporates so many things. The very short answer of this and any sort of parenting struggle you have that involves interacting with another question is you have got to stop being a guesser. <laughs> you have to become an asker. You have to ask straight out. This is the best solution for any time you are wondering what is going on with the other parent. Okay. A couple of things here. Okay. My rule of thumb for drop-offs, anytime somebody's going to be caring for my child. And this goes even now with teenage stuff is do I feel comfortable with how the other parent disciplines and or handles it when the shit hits the fan? So if my kid as a teenager is over somebody's house and gets busted having sex or doing drugs or smoking and I'm not there, do I feel confident in that other parent's ability to handle the situation? Now, of course, Pascal's a teenager, and this is way less of a concern. One of the beauties of as your child gets older, you don't have to be friends with your child's um, <laughs> friends' parents. So that's kind of a real relief. I think that is the question. Okay, so let's let's pull this apart. Now, number one, 
when I was younger, we just called it playing with somebody. Yes. Now here's the big deal. At four years old, when you were younger, you were allowed to play in the yard by yourself. There were bigger kids around and your fence, your yard probably wasn't fenced in. I remember clearly at four or five years old running down the street with friends. And of course we lived in the suburbs. It wasn't a busy street, but there were I don't even know, 30 kids. And we were always outside. Our our yard was not fenced in. We were just outside playing. So that's the big difference. And I've talked about this before. If you go to Let Grow, Lenore Skenazy, she's about free range parenting. We've gotten into a culture where we're just super, super scared for our kids. Crime is down. There's all these things like everybody's super scared of human trafficking, which is a huge problem. But in most like it's so rare for somebody to come and grab your kid out of their yard. It's really, I could go into that for hours, but I won't. (laughs) Um, So number one, we're scared, right? Number two, we do feel like we have to hover and we've just become a society where we have to hover because God forbid something do happen to your kid. Not only, I mean, would that be awful, but you would be completely crucified in the media. So that part sucks. So then now we have these play dates, right? Which we do have to arrange for social time. And unfortunately, so many kids, I have so many friends who moved into a neighborhood that they know have, you know, 30 kids in the neighborhood. And guess what? The streets are empty because everybody's in something scheduled. So you do have to like really ironically schedule free playtime. So that's just it. So number one, you have to kind of stop judging that because that's what it is today, right? So the idea that we have these playdates, they're kind of goofy, but it happens. Now, when they're very little, you do, I think it is important that you be friends with the parents that your kids are gathering with. Number one, because your kid doesn't care. Up until like three or four, they may have a preference to a child. There may also be some oil and water situations, but generally speaking, there's parallel play and there's not like a really strong preference. So you want to use when your child's, you know, 18 months, two, three years old, I think it's really important to be with parents that you like and that you value because you need the socialization. That's a really lonely part of childhood. And so you need the socialization. You need the village. You need to be pinging things off. So then it, it is really vital that you, that you like the people that you're with. And then as your child gets older and does have preferences, then that kind of shifts a little. And you're going to find that you get annoyed. Like that's, I know I had a couple of friend divorces that happened because as the child started to have more crappy behavior, which they do at three, the way parents were disciplining or not disciplining their kids was horrific to me. And I was like, I I just, I don't want to be around this. Right. So now with your neighbor, That is ideal. You got the neighborhood thing and it would be like super ideal. Now, I don't know where you live. I don't know the the, um, street situation, but that is where you definitely want to give your kids some freedom. Like if they can start going back and forth to each other's houses, that's ideal. I think at four years old, you know, a lot depends on, on your personal values, but also like, is your yard fenced in? Because if it's fenced in, you don't have to monitor. You can be glancing out the window. But what I would do with this neighbor child is I would dead on ask the other parent and be like, hey, the kids love to play together. I can't just sit and watch. Like, I would love to have your son over and I will totally monitor. And you can do, you know, shit you need to do in the house. And I would love to do that with my son. If I could just send my kid over and, you know, that way I can get some stuff done. Would you be willing to trade time like that? I'm sure the answer is going to be yes, because every parent everywhere needs more time. (laughs) They can, you know, again, this really depends on your setup. You know, I do know that so many houses today have, you know, 
you can be at the kitchen sink and see outside. I know a lot of houses have like a lot of window and you can see the yard, but I would encourage you that like at that age, they can be monitored or moderated when a problem occurs, but you can give them some free time. The other thing is that maybe you, you know, if you do feel like you have to hover, you know, you have to hover, like cut down the time. You don't have to hover with the two kids at your house and then the two kids at the neighbor's house. Like that's where the trading time would be really awesome. And you kind of have to assume, you don't want to assume that somebody wants to watch your kid, but that's why you want to not be a guesser in this situation. Don't assume, just ask outright. And then that gives you the opportunity to get some time done and not do both things. Yeah. Again, I don't know that there's an appropriate age for drop-off as much as do you feel comfortable? Like, what if your kid bites the other kid? Do you feel comfortable that you're, that the person you're leaving your child with can be impartial, right? That they can see what's happening because we're all going to skew towards our own kid. We just are. So is that something you feel comfortable with? Yeah. And if you feel like you got the heebie-jeebies, you feel like there's just any sort of hair up on your neck, don't leave your kid with that person. I'd also consider you to rethink the nanny play date. Like I get that you don't want to pay for your kid to play with other kids, but, but we do pay to have our kids. We pay for sports. We pay for gymnastics. You know, we're not only paying for the skill building, but largely when you're paying for anything for your child to do at the age of under five, you're paying for the social interaction. You're not paying for the thing, right? We don't send kids to ballet thinking, oh, I'm paying for my child to become a ballerina. We're paying for our child to be in, you know, a structured activity where she learns to listen, where, you know, he might uh, find friends, that kind of thing. So we do pay for child interactions all the time. So I would consider that if it buys you time, then, you know, what's the three hours? And it's nice because the other mom's paying as well, right? Like you're not paying for the whole nanny three hourly fee. You're, you're chipping into the nanny. And I think that's a great solution, especially in the pandemic, you know, especially if you want uh, you guys, we need we need parental time. So what used to happen is we had parental time because our parents had that benign neglect. My mom, I was out with neighborhood kids. My mom knew somebody would tell on me if I did something shitty. My mom knew somebody would come running if something went wrong. We had a different culture, so that's why that's why we're fucking drowning now is because we have no time because we have to hover. So you got to figure out ways that you cannot hover in a society that's just not as free. You know what I mean? That's my answer to that is I think you have to, so it incorporated a lot, which is if you're a guesser and you know you're a guesser and not an asker, and if this is a new concept to you, I do have a podcast about the ask culture versus guest culture. Essentially, guessers expect the other person, they, they'll drop hints, but they won't come out and ask. And askers can sometimes seem rude because they just ask outright. But I think it's far better to be an asker because there's no ambiguity and there's no mistakes. And so I think in this situation, anything that involves another parent, just don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask whatever it is. Hey, how are you going to handle it? I would love to trade time with you. How are you going to handle it if like my kid bites your kid? Or, you know, hey, I'd love to drop my kid off at your house. Do you have any guns in the house? And are they locked up? You know, and I, I, I've i said this before in another podcast. I think it's like how to say the hard things, but like 
I know so many people who are guesses around that issue. You need to fucking ask if there's guns in the house, period. Like, that's not a non-negotiable. That's not a thing that you want to hint around at. You need to be like, do you have guns? Can I see them? Where are they? Whenever you're leaving a kid at somebody's house. Yeah. So that it, it incorporated that anytime you have that situation with another interaction, just ask outright, no matter how uncomfortable it is. And I also think that you should, you should trade time. And whenever you can find anybody to trade time with at this age, go for it. And yeah, you have to watch their kid in return, but you buy yourself, you know, the time that you don't have to go to their house and and sort of hover. All right. That's the questions I had for this uh, March Q&A. Of course, I love, love, love the questions. I think they're so important. They're just so real life. And we get to really delve into all the nuances of parenting. Thank you as always for your support on Patreon. I truly appreciate it. And I hope you guys have an awesome day. My puppy is still asleep and I'm pretty stoked about that. (laughs) All right, you guys rock on. All right. I'm going to sign off for today. You can always go to jamieglowacki.com for the super cool latest updates, including the launch of my new book, yummy new book presale treats, when we release new episodes, and how to work with me directly. And of course, if you need any potty training help, there's a handy link there that will take you to all my potty training resources, including all my courses. That's the Oh Crap Potty Training online course, my pooping solutions course, and my night training supplement. And if you need additional help, how to book with a certified Oh Crap consultant. That's all at jamieglowacki.com. Have a beautiful day and rock on.